Thanks for joining us on episode 1,326 of the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. I'm Catherine Llewellyn. I invite you to invest in yourself, invest in others, develop your influence, and impact the world by using your time, your talent, and your treasures to live out your calling. Having the ability to tune into your real calling and tune out all the noise is key. And one way to be inspired to do that is to listen to this, the Inspired Stewardship Podcast with my friend, Scott Mader. It releases extraordinary creativity and resourcefulness and resilience to actually then accomplish what they want to accomplish in a way which is compassionate and loving and supportive to those around them. So consciousness is like the very, very big on switch for human potential and success. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In today's podcast episode, I interview Catherine Llewellyn. I asked Catherine about her journey to becoming a humanistic psychologist. I also asked her to share a bit about her faith and what a humanistic psychologist even is. And Catherine also shares with you some tips for high-performing type A leaders and what they can do to both lead well and be healthy. One reason I like to bring you great interviews like the one you're going to hear today is because of the power in learning from others. Another great way to learn from others is through reading books. But if you're like most people today, you find it hard to find the time to sit down and read. And that's why today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Go to inspiredstewardship.com slash audible to sign up and you can get a 30-day free trial. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from. And instead of reading, you can listen your way to learn from some of the greatest minds out there. That's inspiredstewardship.com slash audible to get your free trial and listen to great books the same way you're listening to this podcast. Catherine is a master humanistic psychologist overturning accepted norms for human potential and promoting free thinking and self-actualization among powerful and influential type A high achievers. She's a straight-talking, authentic, and constantly learning You'll find most of her wandering the Welsh hills deep in one creative project or another or enjoying various alternative activities such as conscious stance. She founded Yes, You Now in 2020 as a vehicle for helping high achievers go to the next level for their business and for themselves personally. She works in Wales, UK and online, and her expertise lies in working with highly successful people acting as a guide, facilitator, coach and mentor. Her goal is to assist powerful and influential men and women to provide the strong and wise leadership the world needs in these disastrous times. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you, Scott. I'm delighted to be here. I am great to have you here. 
as we record this and put this out for the listeners, I really look forward to it. And people can already tell from your accent that you're not from you're not from South Texas, where I'm from. Nice. <laughs> so we'll talk a little bit about that. We talked a little bit in the intro about where you're from and what you do and the work that you do, but can you unpack a little bit more about your journey and what brought you to be the psychologist you are, to do the work that you're doing with other folks as a coach, speaking, all of those things that you do? Yeah, it's a long story, obviously, so I'll try not to take the whole episode answering that question. (laughs) (laughs) But I was talking to my brother yesterday, actually, and he reminded me that when we were growing up, our father, who was actually in his 40s when he started having the family, so he's an older father than usual, he actually treated us as if we were intelligent, thinking beings, right from the minute that we could actually talk. And I think that set up an expectation in me. That was a reasonable way to behave with everybody and that everyone's got the opportunity to think for themselves and actually learn and grow. And I think that interested me because I immediately noticed that a lot of people in life don't behave as if they see themselves that way or don't behave as if they see other people that way. And a lot of people putting energy into talking about stuff that doesn't actually really matter to them and trying to persuade people they believe in things they don't really believe it. A lot of wasted energy and time. And uh, I think right then as a child, I realized I wanted to be somebody who understood that and was helpful to people around that. And then the journey from there was a whole mixture of me learning who I was, me learning how to deal with becoming a woman, me learning with relationships, how to do a job, how to hold things down, learning some skills, all the stuff we all learn. There was a sort of contextual balloon around it, if you like, that I wanted to consciously become more aware and more supportive to other people around their own awareness and their own growth. And so it's a long, long involved story, but that's it. kind of the summary of the essence of it. But why humanistic psychology? How did you end up in that field? First it's, of all, what is it for those that are hearing that and going, hey, what? <laughs> <laughs> you what? Uh, the, the funny thing of it is I actually was, I didn't know, but I already was a human ex- humanistic psychologist before I even heard the words for it. I did a master's degree in my 40s, and I'd already been working with other people for like 16 years by then. And we were learning all this material, this philosophy and all these methodologies. And I, this is what I've been doing for the last 16 years. So that's what it's called. That's what it's called. And the humanistic psychology is distinct from humanism. So humanism is a different thing. And that's very important to say. So in humanistic psychology, we assume that each and every person has their own sovereignty, their own autonomy their own right to choose their own path in life, and their own natural appetite for growth and development. And that if you actually let them, if you don't get in the way and suppress them, people will naturally want to grow, and they will naturally have quite a good idea about what they want. So it's a very different assumption from the assumption that people are lazy, unimaginative, not very bright, and you've got to persuade them to want to learn to grow. It's completely the opposite point of view. And then out of that comes a a massive body of material around ways of becoming someone who can do that work. 
ways of dealing with your own ego, getting over yourself, being able to really tune into other people with compassion and empathy, but with clarity and firmness when that's required, and all of the things that are needed to really honour and respect people in quite a profound way. You can't lie about that. You can't pretend to do that. You can mess it up. You can make a mistake and you can correct it, but you can't get away with pretending. You have to do the inner work to become a humanistic psychologist. So I've done an enormous amount of personal work and a lot of it very, very weird (laughs) to get where I can actually do what I do. So talk a little bit about your faith journey and how that has intersected with your path and the work that you do. It's a really good question. We Growing up, we were not religious. We didn't go to church or anything. At school, sometimes they took us to the local church for on a sort of a day trip or something, which I never really, they never explained quite why they were doing it. And uh, we had a thing called RI, which was religious instruction class. And it was like we were battered with all this information from the Bible. And it was really not a good way to engage with all of that wonderful material. So I came into my young, my adolescence and young adulthood thing. I was just not religious at all and just thought it was all a waste of time. But I, I then discovered that what I really had was quite a strong connection with what I can talk about as um, the wonder of existence, the wonder of the fact that we're here. And that it really is an extraordinary, miraculous thing that we exist. And to me, if someone asks me the question, do I believe there is a consciousness bigger than my own? My answer is, I really hope so. And I really believe there is. Sort of sense that we are not the ultimate expression of existence. We humans is my sense. So I don't follow a particular thing around what that might look like or what the rules are, et cetera. But I've got a very strong connection with Uh, finding one's path of truth and love. I've got a strong connection with being in service to the whole and a strong connection in the idea that there is a much bigger consciousness. Some people call it the source. Mm -hmm. Some people call it God. Some people call it the great mother, whatever. That I, I have a direct experience that actually exists. So I think you, that might be an answer to your question, perhaps. Absolutely. And again, that's one of the things I try to highlight on the show is that a lot of us have different paths to finding. It's why I ask about faith more than religion, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, how how was your journey to discovering that there's something bigger than you? Whatever name you want to give it, whatever religious faith you grew up in, whatever denomination you whatever label you want to put on it, or the other one that you'll hear is I'm spiritual, not religious. Yes. Uh, it usually means I believe in God, but don't go to church <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, whatever it, it, it yeah. the label is less important than the journey to, yeah. to me. And we all have different journeys. So that I think that's important. And what you're saying is as a, from your point of view, you're trying to acknowledge that people might have different journeys to where they are today. They're all valuable, no matter what, they're just their journey, not Yes, I have to put the conditioning on it that they didn't do it the way I did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and actually, this is something I've only—I haven't been connected to it quite as simply or purely, if you like, as I am now for all that long. I'd say it's a couple of decades, maybe. Whereas before that, I was much more in the probably—I don't know—maybe more common 
point of view, which is that a particular religion or dogma or philosophy is correct and the others are not. And something that really hit me with this, a friend of mine went off and became a, an interfaith minister. Do you have that over there? We, yes, we and, have some folks that work in that field. Yeah, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. There's a body of people that actually pr- create, have created this intense course where you learn about all sorts of different religions. And you are then a minister and you can marry people and you can do funerals and you can do other kinds of celebration. And that really struck me. And she told me quite a lot about her experience doing that process. And it really um, changed her doing it. It's a very powerful experience. Yeah. I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of interactions and work that I've done across different denominations and different religions through the work that I've done that's helped educate me and make me more comfortable with working with folks. And it's like, at the end of the day, it's, we both believe in service. We both believe there's a higher power. You call it one thing. I call it another thing. That doesn't really matter. (laughs) Let's celebrate the fact that we've got what we, let's celebrate what we've got in common instead of focusing on what's different. uh, If that makes sense. Completely. How does the work you do now working with high powered executives and folk type A, high achievers, whatever label you want to put on it, how does the work you do intersect and connect to your study, your background, and and what came before? I, I have this strong sense of possibility around human potential. And uh, someone told me the other day that they thought my superpower was freedom of spirit, which I would say is probably true. And uh, I find, I, I actually believe that the next stage of human evolution is the evolution of of consciousness that and we are i believe we are collectively evolving our consciousness some of the current events notwithstanding i do think on balance i think that we are doing that and so that's what i'm trying to do with my clients but the reason i can get away with that with my clients is that the more conscious people are the easier it is to get clear about the truth of the current situation that they're in the truth of what they want from their heart, their mind, their spirit, their soul, and everything. And it releases extraordinary creativity and resourcefulness and resilience to actually then accomplish what they want to accomplish in a way which is compassionate and loving and supportive to those around them. So consciousness is like the very, very big on switch for human potential and success. So I've got that motivation. And it manifests with the clients in a way that they're really grateful for. They love it. And some of them are into that kind of language and some of them aren't. So I just go with whatever works better with the individual person. So, But yeah, that's how it tunes in. And we do a lot of work on tuning into the body. What's the body telling you? What are the sensations? Which some people have not tuned into their body since the 1970s. And what does that tell you about your experience? and your intuition and your feelings and emotions and everything else. We do a lot of work tuning into the many layers of perception and interpretation of what's going on and lateral thinking and creative thinking and all of that work. We do a lot of work tuning into 
what's the fire inside of us that is really our passion and that really empowers us? And are we tending that fire or are we just throwing the occasional piece of dead wood onto it and hope it'll keep going? Or are we actually looking after ourselves and reflecting and questioning what we're doing and how we're doing it? And are we totally self-obsessed, which of course is the danger when people do that sort of work, or are we actually paying attention to people outside of us? And are we refraining from projecting onto them who we think they are? Are we refraining from projecting onto them what we think they should be doing with their lives? Are we genuinely paying attention to them? Because when we do that, we can really have proper, authentic relationships and we can really do some incredible stuff in our businesses because then we can draw out all of the creativity and wonderfulness that's present. So all of this stuff all blends in together. And in the work, sometimes we'll be focusing on one particular thing and sometimes we'll be working much more generally. But there's always that underpinning foundation around raising consciousness with the purpose of doing the life the way that client wants to do their life. Working with, so a lot of of what people would see as highly successful people, type A, I worked in the corporate world for 11 years. I was an executive, flew around the country, highly compensated, all of that stuff. And I've worked with a lot of other folks in those fields they were peers, they were from other companies, they were whatever, but interacted. And from the outside, a lot of times everyone looks at them and goes, that person's got it all together. They're successful. They're, they're paid well. They drive a nice car. They, whatever. They have a, a wife and 2.4 children and a white picket fence and you know, it, everything's perfect. And yet when you talk to the person and get to know them, a lot of times there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of, of feeling of, I should feel like I've got it all, but I don't. Yeah. Do you see that, that conflict in the leaders that you're working with? And what do you think some of that comes from your point of view? There's a myth that I think the media has a lot of responsible for. There's a myth, which is that the goal is to get to a place where you no longer feel upset ever. <laughs> and it, that's just not the only way to do that, as one of my teachers used to say, is to take your brain out and put it into a little bowl of tepid water and just pipe lift music through it. <laughs> that's the only way to do that. It's a horrible I, don't, I don't know about that. That sounds pretty excruciating to me. It's not excruciating. <laughs> I took his point. The only way is right. completely disengaged from if life. We can remove ourselves from everything yeah. and go up on the mountain yeah. like a guru and sit there and be completely absorbed. Yeah, or just take Vicodin or something on a drip the whole time. And of course, <laughs> I, the think downside- I, I think I've met people that do that actually now that I think about it. But anyway, I know. And that is that's a way to go. But unfortunately, the body w- won't put up with that and starts to break down. But yeah, this myth. Now, this, why this myth relates to what you were talking about is, is two ways. One, people who imagine they can get to a certain point in time and then somehow no longer be subject to the human condition any longer. The human condition is an unconditional part of being alive as a human. So we will always have that, no matter how much money we have. So if somebody has an expectation that, that will go away when they get their third Porsche, their second Ferrari, their home in Hawaii, and this, that, and the other... They're going to be sadly disappointed and they're going to have a crashing 
meltdown if they believe that. So that's one of the manifestations. And actually, one of my podcast guests recently was telling me about what happened to him. He was a, a TV producer, very famous, very successful. And he suddenly hit this point in his 40s where he realized he had so many awards. He was doing really well. Everyone thought he was fantastic. And he was miserable. And that happens for very high achieving people if they don't remember that the human condition is a universal thing. But the other way the myth applies is people who are watching those highly successful people and projecting onto them, you're supposed to be happy now. And then they meet one of them in the park or something, sitting nursing their ankle because they've just hurt their ankle running or something, or upset because they're trying to give up smoking and it's difficult. Or, and they think, this is wrong. Surely you shouldn't be feeling this way because you're rich. You should be fine, right? So all of this is about... Exp- rich people don't have any problems. Yeah, exactly. The only problem they don't have is the problem of being poor. <laughs> and that's real. That's a real thing. Sure, absolutely. And that's great. So I, I also think sometimes people get into like a bubble. You know how sometimes the market will get into a bubble which will later on burst? Mm-hmm. Like whichever market that might be. So that can happen in someone's life as well. Where, they, where a bubble occurs, where they just keep, everything keeps, quotes, getting better, but they're doing it at the cost of staying tuned into their inner self. So they're over-focusing on externals, they're over-focusing on success, progress, material wealth, and building, 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 as if that ongoing building is an endless, inevitable path. But it's a bit like if you really like chocolate and you say, I'm just going to eat chocolate all the time because I really like it. There comes a point where your body will rebel and will say, look, you actually feel terrible now. I know you enjoy eating the chocolate, but right now, and your chocolate bubble bursts and you suddenly realize you need to go on a cleanse. You need to go on a retreat. You need to detox on chocolate. You need to do all of that. And the same applies with people who get overly hooked in to the success hamster wheel. Mm -hmm. And it's a really shocking experience because by then the ego, sometimes the ego by then is really swollen. And so the shock of the awakening hurts more when the ego is swollen. And sometimes people don't come back from that. And sometimes they do. So it's, 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 and anyone who's trying to accomplish a lot in life, that's the potential problem they're taking on when they do that. That that problem of swollen ego, bursting bubble of expectation, meltdown, and then how do I come back? It's a genuine risk. And I think a lot of times too, you know, that part of the risk of that is not just how it affects us, but how we often how it often affects the people around us as well, because yeah. often it's easier to quote lash out at the people around you and blame. I think that's where a lot of what the midlife crisis and that kind of moment of I'm going to divorce my wife, leave my kids, quit my job, <laughs> whatever, leave my husband, that feeling of, because again, like you said, it's chasing that 
well, something has to be wrong. So let me fix it because I should be happy. Yes. And yet, and again, it's not that they can't be happy. It's just, it's not going to be a permanent condition (laughs) of every moment of every day, no matter where you are in the journey. That's right. That's right. I, my, my version of that used to be a moving house. I would be, do you know what? I think if I live somewhere different, things would be better. And I just kept moving house. And <laughs> sometimes I, it was better, but the thing that was that I really wanted to improve didn't improve because guess who came with me every time I moved? Me. Yeah. My stuff. So <laughs> it was that was when my you version. You packed up your stuff. You really did pack up your stuff. I really did. I packed up my stuff. I couldn't leave my stuff behind. Yeah. So that does that. But also the other thing to say is sometimes people have a massive awakening in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s even. <laughs> and that awakening tells them it is time to leave the relationship. Sometimes that sure. actually is the right thing to do. And who knows what it's going to be? But I think the risk comes when people think there's a particular outcome to the meltdown that everyone should do. Right. The whole point of the meltdown is it tells you that you don't know. You just don't know. And all you do know is it's not working and you haven't managed to make it work. And you need to get that and recognize that and then go into a state of curiosity and appreciation for what you have, which some people would say, is a spiritual state, actually, that curiosity and appreciation state. And a lot of the people I work with uh, are either in that state when they start working with me or they go into it while they're working with me. Because generally, if they end up in front of me, it's because they've reached a point where they've recognised there's some work for them to do and that they want a more meaningful next piece and they want to be more aware and they want to be more loving and giving and contributive and part of the solution and so on. And in fact, stewardship, that is a beautiful word that you have on your podcast. A lot of them, it's also a a meeting of that moment of recognizing that they have a role of stewardship and they want to honor it and do it well. Mm -hmm. So they tend to have gone through a bit of that before they show up with me. Otherwise they wouldn't choose someone like me to work with. That, and to be clear, yeah, that I wasn't putting or trying, I wasn't trying to say like leaving a relationship or staying in the relationship is what's right or wrong. No. The point is when you begin to look out, often we look first to outside things and want to change them to fix what's actually an inside problem. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I didn't think you did mean that. I, I always think, though, it's important to emphasize these things Absolutely. because it's so easy for us to get into this sort of myth myth head where we and i've noticed this if i've listened to a podcast episode let's say and then six months later i listen to it again and you heard and it. I, I think my god i didn't hear that when they said it last time but they sure as hell said it <laughs> yeah the words came out of their mouth but that doesn't mean you heard it <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah the difference between hearing and listening um, yeah. which again yeah. comes down to another thing that often creates some of the problems that we're talking about or some of the difficulties and challenges that we're talking about is we don't necessarily hear and listen the same way. I agree. When you're working with list leaders and you're talking to these folks that, that you work with, 
what are some of the biggest concerns that they have, challenges they have, and what, you know, if, for the listener that's listening, what is something important as they hear those concerns or those challenges that, that they can take away? There's been an effect. I'm talking about t- in today's world, and we are mid-2023. For anyone who's listening to this in 2030, <laughs> they may not be, be in a different context. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But right now, um, the world's just been through two or three years, a very unusual two or three years. And one of the strong themes throughout that period was fear mm-hmm. and all of the things that, that come out of fear. And one of the effects of, of fear that goes on for a long time is that it, it erodes the inner the inner structure, the inner strength, and the inner resourcefulness of human beings. It's one of the most debilitating emotions that that we that there are for us, and we're not designed to experience it for extended periods. We're designed to experience it for just long enough to get the hell out of the way of the tiger or the mastodon, whatever it is, and then it's supposed to go away, right? So. We're not designed for that. We've got a situation now where many people are still suffering from the after effects of that, the shadow of that. And they've got a bit less energy, a bit less imagination, a bit less optimism, a bit less creativity, a bit less flexibility. They're a bit more fragile. They're a bit more nervous. They they find it harder to commit to things. They find it harder to make decisions. They find it harder to have fun. Now, what that means is if you're a leader, and this is what leaders tell me as well, it's they're constantly thinking, how can I help my people feel better? How can I help them relax? How can I help them feel safe? How can I help them feel confident? Because people are walking around going, is this going to happen again? Mm -hmm. Is something awful going to happen to my family? There are people walking around thinking that right now, and that's really difficult. And the other thing about it, of course, is in this economy, organizations need to be actually more effective than usual, more agile and flexible and creative. But we've got these depleted people, either who are depleted themselves or people they love are depleted. And that in itself is depleting. You come home from work, you say to your partner, how are you? And they go, not great. How are you yesterday? Can't complain, mm. but not great. And it's very the sad. Answer is, the answer here is, I'm fine. Which, yeah. Which does not mean I'm fine. <laughs> it doesn't, exactly. And it's the same over here. People say, I'm fine. Yes. So, and said, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> that's right. It's too painful to talk about it. And it's heartbreaking. Personally, I find it heartbreaking. And uh, for leaders, it can be very difficult because they're carrying that as well. Often they're in a better state because they've been feeding their creativity and their energy in other ways. Successful leaders tend to be people who have a whole bunch of stuff in their support structure that helps keep them lively and healthy and flexible and connected. So, for them, in many ways, it's often easier, but for their people, not necessarily. And so that's a 
big issue for leaders at the moment. How do I do that without coming across as some sort of idiot who's just trying to wave a flag and say everything's great? Everyone knows that may not be the case. So how do I do that? It's, a, it's really challenging. So I've got a few questions that I like to ask all of my guests, but before I go there, is there anything else that you'd like to share about the work that you do or that you think is important for the listener? I think not my work specifically, but coaching in general or facilitation. One of the unfortunate things we have in our culture is that people view coaching or facilitation or any other kind of help of that sort as a last resort to only use when nothing else has worked and you're really in a terrible state. And very often people view it that way, like a doctor's appointment, you know, you have to go. And that's really a waste because the best time to use coaching is when things are going well, because in those times you've got your hands on your resources and you're resilient. It's a bit like if you went, wanted to go to a fitness coach, you don't go to them when you're sick. You go to them when you're healthy and well and you're on a good diet and then they can really do some good stuff with you and you can really excel. It's the same with coaching. So I would really encourage and invite people to to see coaching as an investment alongside all the other investments they put into their endeavors, alongside time, energy, money, personal qualities, skills, all of those things. See coaching as one of those ingredients and use it to get more value in return on all those other investments, rather than seeing it as something to only do when you're desperate. I agree 100%. But often, as you had mentioned earlier, it's when there's that pain moment that people come to coaching as something that they want to try. It's out of the pain as opposed to out of hey, I want to get better. <laughs> it's often yeah. out of, I need to fix this. Yeah. Kind of moment. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just Correct. that if you, yeah. if you wait until that's the case, it's going to be much harder work to do it than if you do it earlier on. It takes longer. <laughs> it takes longer and it's more painful because you're tired already. So, you know, you mentioned stewardship earlier and that's my brand is inspired stewardship. And yet that's one of those words that is used a lot, but people mean it completely different ways and they hear different things from it. And so I like to ask everybody, when you hear the word stewardship, what does that mean to you? And what is that understanding? How has that affected your life? I actually looked it up. I thought, I'm going to look this up. Okay. And, uh, and it said, the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care, which I think is quite good. I, when I was younger, I had no concept of stewardship in the sense that I was just completely selfish. So it was all about me. What do I want for me? Over time, I've become aware of the fact that my physical body, for example, is something I have stewardship over. So it's something that's been entrusted to my care and it's up to me to take care of it. Mm-hmm. And it's a duty to take care of it because if I don't take care of it, I can't function well. And if I don't function well, I can't contribute and show up, not to mention I can't have an enjoyable life. So that's like a first layer of stewardship for me. 
a kind of next layer is then there are people who have entrusted themselves to my care in the sense they've trusted me to be a close friend, a lover, a partner, a colleague, a client, a supplier, whatever it is. They've entrusted themselves to me in a way to my care in the sense that I take care of the way I am with them and of them with me, not in any kind of parental way, but in a way of responsibility in regard to their well-being uh, and care for that. Now, to me, that's another kind of stewardship, which I'm very connected to. And the fact I mentioned both of those things, the one about my own body and, of course, my own emotional well-being and all of those other sides of my wellness, and then stewardship for others in my sphere, to me, the two are very closely interdependent. Because if I sacrifice myself for other people, I then erode myself, and I then, in consequence, actually become a burden on other people. But if I sacrifice other people for my good, that doesn't work either, because I actually then erode my soul if I do that, okay, which doesn't work for anybody. So to me, my relationship with stewardship is that it's for the whole thing, me, those around me, and in my choice of work, that's my contribution to the planet, if you like. It's a very immodest way to put it, but that's in my small way. That's me trying to play my part as a member of humanity in terms of trying to make a contribution that I think is meaningful. And there's just another example around stewardship, completely different example. Over here, we have a car called an Aston Martin. Have you come across them? Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm from- Beautiful car. I'm proud to own an Aston Martin. And um, the thing about an Aston Martin is it's a very beautiful car and it's a very powerful car. And people who own an Aston Martin will tell you they don't really feel like they own this car. They really feel like they are a guardian of the car, like a steward. They have permission to have the blessing and the privilege of this thing allowing them to be in its company for a period of time. Okay. Now that's a very materialistic take on the same thing. It's like a sort of heritage thing over here, English heritage type thing, this car. Every person of every type, every class, age, creed, etc., see loves the Aston Martin as a British symbol of something. And so everyone has that slight feeling of sort of stewardship. If they see an Aston, they'll respect it, they'll love it. A Jag, maybe not. A BMW, maybe not, right? But an Aston, there's that almost devotional relationship with it. That's, that's a very materialistic example of stewardship, if you like. Yeah, but it's still the same underlying emotion. Let's yeah. 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 So this is my favorite question that I like to ask everybody. Imagine for a minute that I could invent this magic machine And with this machine, I could pluck you from where you sit today and transport you into the future, maybe 150, 250 years. And through the power of this machine, you were able to look back and see your entire life, see all of the connections you've made, all of the ripples you've had, all of the impacts you've left behind. What impact do you hope you've left behind in the world? The most important thing is love, of course. 
I would like to look back and see that the people who I've connected with in my life have had a a greater experience of self-love and a greater experience of universal love and a greater experience of human love with others, and that they have actually then helped others to do that as well, and that that has spread out in a kind of a rosy circle (laughs) from all of those people. And I thought I was going to say consciousness, but actually the word that came to me when you asked me that question was love. I'm trying to think to myself, are those the same word in some way or different? <laughs> it's <laughs> you, arguable. You, it, I, I don't know if you can have one without the other, but you can, yeah. uh, you can, because we have words, we can choose to emphasize one thing or another, even though we know that everything's all one great, massive, magical blob. <laughs> just, sorry, when you threw out the other word, I'm like, wait, okay, yeah, those are connected for sure. I don't know. Anyway. I know. We, we could do another hour debate on that probably and have a conversation about those. But yeah. I think that's one of the reasons I asked what the stewardship mean to you, because I think that's one of the things that we do as humans and that is important to do as humans is we all use language and we all use words. But I finally have gotten to the point where I realized that when I use a word, other people hear it, but they don't necessarily actually hear what I meant by that word. Yes. Even though we could both look it up in the dictionary and read what it says in the dictionary, that doesn't necessarily mean we actually have the same understanding of what that word means. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think the word service is very strong for me in regard to it. Whereas for someone else, it might mean the boss who's in charge. Mm. So for me, it's more of a service emphasis. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, we're about halfway through 2023. What's on the roadmap for you with the rest of the year and going into next year? What's on your journey? On your Good question. I'm actually at a point in my life where I often have surprises appear in my life and I often don't quite know what's going to happen because I keep my life quite spacious. I keep quite a lot of space in there so that unexpected things can happen. I'm certainly keeping going with my podcast, Truth and Transcendence, because that is just proving to be, in the context of what we've been talking about today, is actually quite a good vehicle for throwing stuff out into the world, just as your podcast is, that anyone anywhere can pick up on and draw from and listen to it with a friend or listen back to it or whatever they want to do. So that's certainly continuing. I've I've been working with some really amazing human beings. And some of those are going to continue working with me going forward into next year. Some of those are just about finishing their programs. Although when people finish their programs, quite often they show up again a few years later, you never know. I'm doing some very interesting work locally, or at least I find it interesting, with the local community around conscious dance, which is a very beautiful way to connect with our consciousness and our spirit and our creativity. And I'm doing some local stuff around energy techniques that people like to learn and use, again, to get more connected to their consciousness and shift their consciousness in a way whereby they can shift their lives. So I'm doing my kind of slightly more formal client work, but I'm always doing this beautiful local stuff where I am in Wales, which is such a 
one beautiful place full of hills and mountains and sheep and <laughs> and places to walk on the cliffs, right? <laughs> yeah. We don't have cliffs where I am because I'm inland, but oh, inland. on the mountains, certainly over the tops of the mountains. You can find out more about Catherine over at her website, yesyounow.today, and that's all of those words are spelled out. I'll have links to it over in the show notes as well. Catherine, anything else you'd like to share with the listener? Yes, I I did subtly drop in my podcast a few moments ago as we were talking. I really do recommend listening to that, Truth and Transcendence, and there is actually a website link for it which I think, Scott, you're going to put in the show notes, aren't you? Put that in your notes, absolutely. Fantastic. So this podcast is all about the idea that when we really connect with and find and connect with our truth, then we can transcend. It's very hard to transcend when we are d- deluding ourselves in any way. But when we find our truth, that gives us amazing power and impetus. So I have a series of incredible guests coming on talking about their stories and their gifts and how they've really transformed their lives and what they're doing. And I also have a whole bunch of short solo episodes where I talk about one or other interesting or clear and relevant topic or really obscure topic or whatever you like. So there's something for everybody there. And uh, people say it's quite a an enlightening listen, Truth and Transcendence. So I'd like to invite you over there and say welcome to everybody. Awesome. Of course, I'll have a link to it in the show notes, or you can find that too anywhere that great podcasts are found. So iTunes or whatever search you have, and it's truth and transcendence. Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash iTunes rate, all one word, iTunes rate. It'll take you through how to leave a rating and review and how to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get every episode as it comes out in your feed. Until next time, invest your time, your talent, and your treasures, develop your influence, and impact the world.